0: Welcome to the Dartmouth Political Times podcast. In this series, we discuss a range of domestic and international issues with Dartmouth College community members, including professors and students. We hope you enjoy this episode. I'm your host, The Roomable, a 22 at Dartmouth College.
1: Hi, I'm Madeline, I'm a 23, and I'm your co-host for this episode. On today's episode, we'll be covering impeachment and conviction of the president. Before we dive into the topic with our guest, um, I'm gonna give you a quick overview of the state and origin of the impeachment of President Trump. So impeachment is a process by which the legislature brings charges against a civil officer of the government for treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, which is defined in Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution. This is similar to a grand jury. Uh, The power to impeach lies with the House in Article 1, Section 2. Conviction is then the process of removing the government official from office based on the charges by the House or the trial itself. The power to convict lies with the Senate in Article 1, Section 3. Just a quick overview um, of kind of what's been going on recently. The impeachment efforts against President Donald Trump began on September 24, 2019, when the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, announced the commencement of an impeachment inquiry into the interaction between President Trump and Ukraine. President Trump allegedly withheld military aid granted to Ukraine by Congress in order to pressure the Ukrainian government into announcing that they will investigate Hunter Biden, the son of Joe Biden, who is President Trump's political opponent. The House of Representatives impeached the president on December 18, 2019, based on two articles of impeachment. The first, Abuse of Power, argues that President Trump used the powers of the presidency to pressure Ukraine for the benefit of his political campaign. The second, Obstruction of Justice, charges President Trump with blocking testimony and refusing to provide documents in the impeachment inquiry. Now, the question of if Trump will be removed from office falls to the Senate. The Senate is currently comprised of 47 Democrats and 53 Republicans. In order to convict the President and remove him from office, two-thirds of the Senate, or 67 members, must vote against the President.
0: The date is January 29, 2020. With us today is Professor Dean Lacey, Professor in the Government Department here at Dartmouth College. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Pleasure to be with you.
0: Great. So before we get started, could we just ask you to tell us a bit about any current research you're doing, any projects, or maybe what classes you're teaching this term?
2: Uh, I've taught two sections of the American political system, that's Government 3, last term. And one of the projects that I worked on in that class, which is both teaching and research, is that uh, we divided the class into seven groups of five to seven students each, and they had to do a case, a case study of some issue in American politics. One of the groups studied impeachment and was working on their case. In fact, they presented it during the day of one of the uh, impeachment uh, proceedings in the House of Representatives. I also teach campaigns and elections and American political behavior and a couple of statistics courses, including multivariate models. And my research right now uh, focuses on how people answer public opinion polls And the argument is that people think about issues more deeply and in a more complex way than most political researchers give them credit for. And I have another project ongoing on the effect of uh, federal spending on elections and how uh, the Democrats and Republicans get differential benefits from the spending that they deliver back to their districts.
1: That's super interesting. Um, Hopefully we'll be able to touch on some of those topics um, sometime today. So you've previously mentioned um, that you were working in the media during the Bill Clinton impeachment process. Uh, What are some of the similarities and differences that you've noticed between these two impeachment proceedings?
2: I was doing interviews in Columbus, Ohio, almost daily during the uh, Clinton impeachment proceedings. And um, Ohio was, of course, a swing state, as it always has been. And I think the public was deeply divided as were political elites on, first of all, whether uh, the actions of President Clinton were an impeachable offense. And so that's similar to what we're going through now, which is that we have a a deeply divided public, mostly along partisan lines, deeply divided members of the House and Senate, mostly along partisan lines, that are debating whether what Donald Trump does is an impeachable offense. Now, one difference, I think, is that in Clinton's case, the initial um, charges were about a personal action that wasn't political. And in Donald Trump's case, it's about a political action that may have been linked to well, other political actions, which is the investigation by Ukraine of uh, Joe Biden's son. So one difference is the personal versus political. But I think the similarities are the the, the deeply divided public, deeply divided political elites, and the fact that both cases fell in, weren't clearly within impeachable offenses. There was enough suspicion, I think, among political elites in the public that something was wrong. But did this something that was wrong rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors?
1: Yeah, and let's talk about that. So um, in the Constitution, it is probably purposefully vague of just high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, so what do constitutional scholars or yourself or other people, perhaps in the government department, um, kind of interpret those words, especially for people, uh, maybe our listeners who maybe don't know exactly what like that high crime and misdemeanors might well, be? Well,
2: the answer is we don't really know. But the the more specific answer is that different people have different opinions now, and different people in the uh, Constitutional Convention, that is the framers of the Constitution, had different opinions then. Um, For instance, George Mason uh, of of Virginia had introduced the word maladministration as an impeachable offense, and James Madison argued against it, saying you'd have to take maladministration out because that could make anything. Impeachable. Um, when the framers of the Constitution went back to their home states after they'd written the Constitution to try to sell it to their own state conventions, which then had to adopt the Constitution, the, the, the phrases that they used to describe what was an impeachable offense varied. From Pinckney in South Carolina to Iredale in in North Carolina to James Madison, Virginia, they all had different descriptions of what an impeachable offense would be. Um, Iredale even said that, well, lying to the Senate about foreign policy or foreign affairs or um, what we're doing uh, overseas would be an impeachable offense, so lying to the Senate was impeachable. Um, Others suggested that uh, high crimes and misdemeanors included maladministration, even though it wasn't explicitly in the Constitution. So there's a variety. Of opinion about what constituted um, high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, ironically, the second person brought up uh, on impeachment charges uh, uh, was a federal judge who was impeached for basically being insane. Um, even his son had testified that he had lost his mind. And the framers of the or the the the, um, the House and Senate at the time, recognizing that it wasn't was not an impeachable offense, thought that impeachment was the only method to remove someone from office who was clearly not competent to carry out the duties of office any longer.
1: That makes a lot of sense.
0: So talking about this this vagueness that you mentioned, do you think this is more of a like a strength or or a weakness of impeachment? I mean, you hear certain arguments now that you know because it's so vague, impeachment might be like almost a first resort now, rather than the last resort it was really meant to be. Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Much of the Constitution is vague, and that's both a strength and a weakness. It's a strength in that the Constitution can adapt to the times, uh, and it's a weakness in that we end up debating what specific provisions of the Constitution mean, um, including things like that the president has to be a natural born US citizen, which has never really been technically defined. People think they know exactly what that means in the Constitution, but it hasn't been precisely defined. So even that term is somewhat vague, but high crimes and misdemeanors is something that the framers debated, had a variety of opinions on, and that's a compromise phrase. So it's hard to say that the framers of the Constitution had a singular opinion of what those words meant. Instead, those are a compromise representing a diversity of opinion, like much of the Constitution.
1: Mm, that makes sense. Um, and you've kind of talked about when you're talking about a similarity between the Bill Clinton, the Bill Clinton impeachment hearings, and now about this kind of growing partisanship that is probably getting worse um, and seems to be continued to do so. Um, Do you ever see, because impeachment may be seen as an inherently partisan or political act because it is removing a president, do you ever see a world in which we can kind of transcend these politics for impeachment? Or do you think from now on impeachment will solely be a political question?
2: I think there are cases where impeachment would transcend partisan divides. I think the case of Richard Nixon Mm -hmm. um, transcended a, a party divide. Um, and he resigned rather than being impeached. But there's an important caveat about when Richard Nixon was president, we had a lot more moderates, um, that is, liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats in Congress, and when he saw that he was losing them, he knew that he was going to be impeached and he had to resign. In the absence of those moderates, and we don't have those moderates in the House or Senate anymore, then it's less clear whether we would have cases where there's clearly an impeachable offense. I mean, I think that that corruption— um, bribery would be clearly Im- impeachable, um, and, and it's not clear in this case with Donald Trump that you know he wasn't he wasn't bribing someone else as much as uh, potentially asking for something to be done, almost a reverse bribe. And is, would that uh, end up being being corruption at the level of high crimes and misdemeanors? It's it's a tough question. I mean, I don't think that there's a clear answer on either side. That doesn't mean, at least not yet, not until we get into um, hearing witnesses and getting into more of the details of the case.
0: Yeah. So going forward, a lot of people, I mean, just discussing on campus or even during, you know, Dartmouth political times meetings, there's this idea that impeachment's happening, you know, so close to an election, a presidential election that it just, there's no point doing it. You might as well just wait till the election happens, let the voters decide. Do you have
2: a view on that? The framers specifically intended for the Senate to uh, be the final arbiter of impeachment because they were isolated from elections like the House of Representatives. So the House of Representatives was closer to the people, and the, the framers of the Constitution wanted the Senate to be the institution to convict because it's further removed from the people. And Alexander Hamilton Wrote in Federalist 65 and 66 a defense of impeachment, um, and, and it's being carried out mostly in the Senate by by saying that this is an impeachable offense is not something that you can leave to voters, um, not something you can leave to voters and their passions, and not something you can leave to the Supreme Court. He he argued because they would lack the. Um, the, the political clout to be able to try impeachment. So he really did want the Senate, and the framers of the Constitution wanted the Senate to uh, be the final decider on, on these impeachment cases. Now, Donald Trump's case is unique in that he has the possibility of being re- reelected. Uh, Bill Clinton was in a second term, couldn't be reelected when he was um, brought up on impeachment charges. Andrew Johnson did not get his um, own party's nomination, so he would not have been up for reelection. So we, we have the first case in American history of a president... Who's standing uh, being, will be tried for impeachment in the Senate and could be uh, could be elected uh, again in November.
1: So let's say that the Senate acquits um, or does not. Um, convict President Trump, um, and then perhaps he gets elected again, do you see that that just completely taking the teeth out of impeachment? Where would you see um, impeachment on either party kind of going forward? And how would that kind of change the dynamics of separation of powers um, and checks on the president um, going forward?
2: Well, if the Senate acquits and Trump is reelected, then it looks like the Senate and the public were in step together and that the charges weren't impeachable. Um, or at least that, that um, the public didn't think that Trump should be removed from office. So in that sense, I don't think it would negate the idea behind impeachment and impeachable offenses. Um, right now, the public, I, would, I, I think, may be taking this more seriously than the Senate. And it, it, the evidence for that is that 75% of the population in, in the latest polls want to see witnesses called before the Senate as though it's a trial. That's ninety-five percent of Democrats, about two-thirds of Independents, and just under just just under fifty percent, about forty-nine percent of Republicans, um, and, and that suggests that this uh, the, the impeachment proceedings right now are not necessarily following the same party line of the public that they are in the Senate, A- and, and that the public I, I think may be taking this responsibility a little more seriously. I suspect that the Republicans in the Senate will start to, to listen to their constituents back home. That doesn't mean that the, their constituents want Trump impeached, but certainly want the witnesses to be heard. Mm-hmm. So we talked a little bit about the future of impeachment, impeachment, sorry, maybe
0: how the proceedings will impact that. Could we take a step back and look at maybe historically, you talked about in an earlier conversation that the role of the executive of the president has changed since you know the founding of um, the United States of America. Um, what impact or how does that relate to impeachment? Do you think that um, the president becoming a more important figure um, in
2: American politics has, has changed impeachment in impeachment any way? I think it has. Remember, um, Article One of the Constitution is about Congress. Article Two is about the president. Article One, delineating the powers of Congress is longer and more specific than Article II, Uh, there's a sense that any functioning democracy functions first through its legislature and second through its executive. The legislature makes laws. The executive enforces those laws. But over the course of American history, the role of the president has grown, um, partly as a result of just the natural powers of an executive and also because of America's role in the world. So we have a much stronger executive now than we did when the Constitution was written. Even those who wanted a strong executive, such as Alexander Hamilton, I think would look at the executive branch now and think that it has quite a bit of power. What that means is that historically our calibration for the relationship between the president and Congress has changed, tilted toward the president. So in the specific case of Donald Trump, there was a law passed by Congress giving military aid to the Ukraine, and Trump refused to deliver that aid without allegedly a quid pro quo, exchange for an investigation into Joe Biden's son. In earlier times, I think that would have been seen more seriously as the president is supposed to enforce laws that Congress passes, and a president refusing to enforce those laws would be taken, uh, I think, a bit more um, seriously by the framers of the Constitution than perhaps by those who are in Congress today.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Um, So I feel like we've been talking a lot about the president and the Senate, um, but I want to kind of switch over to the House. Um, So the House impeached President Trump. Um, And it seems as though if either the Senate acquits and or the voters decide to re-elect Trump, um, the kind of House mandate is less and less. So what is the role of an impeached president if if they're not convicted? Does the House really have um, any kind of political footing or backing? um, Or is it just more of a slap on the wrist that the president and then the Senate can kind of brush off?
2: If Trump were to be re-elected and uh, assuming that he is acquitted by the Senate, I think the House will be in a weaker position. Even if Democrats pick up seats in the 2020 election, I I think Trump could use the acquittal and reelection as a way to point to the Democrats in the House as having engaged in a partisan exercise that was fruitless. And the message that the Democrats were worried about impeaching him rather than worried about other more pressing issues, the terminology that he would use, I think will resonate with a lot of swing voters, that this was ended up in the House being much ado about nothing, a waste of our time and attention. And it will give uh, President Trump a a, a lot of, I think, political ammunition to use against uh, the Democrats in the House and maybe those in the Senate too.
0: Okay, so do you think this will have an impact perhaps on voter turnout overall? Do you think voters will be mobilized? Voters will be discouraged?
2: Hard to say. Um, Certainly, I think this will in uh, energized Trump's base, but it's probably also energizing the Democratic base. I don't know what it will do to independents and swing voters. I mean, there's a risk that they are either turned off by the political process and won't turn out, or that they're overloaded with information, don't know what to make of it, and are confused, um, or that uh, what happens over the next six months or so really takes them away from being independents and pushes them into one of the partisan categories. So, it's, it's really hard to predict. Right now, it seems that, that the American electorate is more or less locked into a, a turnout rate and partisan division that it's been locked into for the past several elections. That is, we have a, have a, a paper with a former Dartmouth undergraduate who's in uh, Zach Markovich, who's in the PhD program in political science at MIT right now. And we looked at the volatility in American elections going back to 1828, volatility across the 50 states. Well, however many states there were going back in time at 50 now. Um, so each state across each election year and how much did its vote in the presidential election change from one election to the next? And we're in a period in American history that has the lowest volatility. Uh, of any time since 1828. That is, fewer states switch sides from one election to another. Uh, Fewer states change the Democratic versus Republican two-party vote uh, from election to election. So we are locked into a partisan divide in presidential elections in a way that we've never seen in American history. I don't think impeachment will change that. I don't see a change in that in 2020.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Um... Do you believe that um, kind of we're all operating on the assumption um, that the Senate will acquit um, and then perhaps Trump will win the election? Um, do you see, because of the way partisan politics are playing, in which it seems that Mitch McConnell and the Republican Party um, are having a lot of these Republican sen- senators, perhaps you could say, towing the line, making sure that they're standing with the president regardless. Um, do you think that the framers kind of intended for this or thought that this would occur, or? Um, were they less worried about the impact that political parties could have on these representatives themselves?
2: Well, when the Constitution was drafted, the f- we didn't have political parties at the national level. They existed in weaker form in, in, in some states, and the framers had at least hoped, if uh, not uh, envisioned, that we would have uh, a politics devoid of parties and, and that would um, escape the mischiefs of faction. Uh, within two elections after the Constitution was adopted. We had a deeply partisan election in, in, in 1800, and we've had a, a two-party system more or less ever since then. So the framers, I don't think, envisioned the kind of deep partisanship and, and organized political parties that we have today. They didn't exist back then. But um, Alexander Hamilton, uh, writing in, in The Federalist, Federalist 65, when he, when he was uh, defending the Senate as the arbiter of impeachment, Uh, wrote, and this is a lengthy quote, but I think it also shows how much uh, ahead of their time the framers, or at least some of the framers of the Constitution were, even though they hadn't envisioned political parties, they envisioned political conflict. So uh, Hamilton wrote in Federalist 65, and I'm quoting, a well-constituted court for the trial of impeachments is an object not more to be desired than difficult to be obtained in a government wholly elective. The subjects of its jurisdiction are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. There are a nature of which may, with peculiar propriety, be denominated political, as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to the society itself. The prosecution of them for this reason will seldom fail to agitate the passions of the whole community, and to divide it into parties more or less friendly or inimical to the accused. In many cases it will connect itself with pre-existing factions and will enlist all other animosities, partialities, influence, and interest on one side or on the other and in such cases there will always be the greatest danger that the decision will be regulated more by the comparative strength of parties than by the real demonstrations of innocence or guilt. And it's in quote. Now, when he says parties there, he didn't envision organized political parties, but just groups of people. But little did he know he was right.
0: So we've talked a lot about partisanship. Thanks for that quote. It's excellent. Um, So correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, you're involved in the academic study of partisanship. Now, I think when um, generally, we talk about partisanship in the news or the media, or like just the layman talks about partisanship. It's a very, very simplistic idea of like two or three groups, maybe well two in the states, um, who generally believe you know one group believes one thing, the other group believes the opposite, and they just refuse to see eye to eye. It's a very simplistic view. Is there anything from academic, um, an academic background you'd like to maybe clarify about partisanship, or tell people that they don't, they don't know, and that they should know?
2: The nature of partisanship is hotly debated in the political science literature. In fact, we almost have two factions or parties when debating what parties are and what they mean. On one side is um, a group that originated with a a book called The American Voter written by uh, four authors at the University of Michigan, Campbell, Converse, Miller, and Stokes. And they defined party identification as the unmoved mover um... An identity, more like a group identity, um, almost like rooting for a sports team, Red Sox versus Yankees, that we acquire early in life and that becomes the filter through which we see all else. And that is, we adopt issue positions that line up with our party affiliation, we pick candidates that line up with our party affiliation. And in that world view right now, uh, people are already sorted into Democrats and Republicans. And the contemporary expression of that view is that most elections are decided now based on negative partisanship. That means what drives us is how much we hate the other party. And Democrats are motivated by their hatred of Trump, and Republicans are motivated by their hatred of, and then insert the name of the Democratic nominee, or Nancy Pelosi, or, or anyone else. Another view of partisanship, um, that's really due to uh, Morris Fiorina, who wrote a book called Retrospective Voting uh, in American National Elections, and V.O. Key, uh, um, the responsible voter, says that um, we choose parties based on uh, a running tally of retrospective evaluations of how the parties perform in office on issues we care about. V.O. in another work called The Electorate, Irrational God of Vengeance and Reward, that is, we make our decisions based on what the parties do in office, and we judge them somewhat fairly. And then uh, by this view, the election uh, in 2020, as in most elections, will turn on whether the economy is doing well, whether we're at peace or there's a war. Um, uh, issues like that that will move mostly independents to decide one side or another on the issue. A- and this, the, the two different visions of party are, are, are still debated among political scientists, I couldn't tell you which one is right. I, I suspect the latter. I'm probably in a minority among political scientists on that. And in many ways, the 2020 election will be an important test. If Donald Trump wins with more than he—votes than he got in 2016, and the economy's doing well, it'll look like the retrospective voting side was correct. Um, if if uh, the election looks like it's just a replay of 2016— then maybe it looks like the uh, the, the the parties is our enduring identity side is right.
1: I want to talk about this idea of identity. Um, in the poll that you brought up um, earlier in this podcast, um, I believe you said it was like 70 or 75% um, of Americans want to see witnesses. Um, and that seems like it might be contrary to kind of political scientists' belief that um, people are only focused on the identity of their political party and don't really have perhaps views that could conflict with that. Um, so, can you explain and maybe put into context um, what this kind of quote that talks about how people people want to see perhaps new witnesses, um, to see perhaps if Trump um, should be convicted, um, versus kind of what people have already been talking about, that people are already in their camps on impeachment and don't want to hear anything else.
2: In, in my mind, the fact that the public is not following in lockstep with their partisan leaders suggests that people are thinking about this more deeply and more objectively than we give them credit for. Um, the, the American Voter, that book that I mentioned, if, um, that, that the worldview that comes out of, of that book and people who believe in party identification really is a deeply held identity, would suggest that we would decide whether we think uh, witnesses should be called an impeachment based on what our senators are telling us, or what they want. So that is Republicans should say no, Democrats should say yes. And right now you're getting, uh, I think, a number of Republicans who are saying that there should be witnesses. And that suggests that, that, in this case, Republicans just aren't playing follow the leader, uh, but are, are, are making a, a, up their own minds. And, and let me go on to put this in, in the context of Hamilton again, writing in Federalist 65. Uh, he, he wrote that the framers of the Constitution, I'm going to quote, thought the Senate the most fit depository of this important trust of impeachment, Those who can best discern the intrinsic difficulty of the thing will be least hasty in condemning that opinion and will be most inclined to allow due weight to the arguments which may be supposed to have procured it or produced it. And and in this case, I think he's probably talking about the public more than he is the Senate, though at the time, Hamilton was suspicious of the public being capable of the political neutrality and decision-making that I think we may be seeing in public opinion.
0: Yeah, and it's curious how I'm just thinking now that I've, I've almost been, uh, I don't know, brainwashed to, th- to think that the Senate will vote on very partisan lines. I'm not exactly sure why I have that opinion, but I, but I do. And I did before going into this episode. Um, why do you think that I think most people who grapple with this issue of impeachment or read about it immediately have the assumption that, yes, the Senate will definitely vote among partisan lines. And we see that the public um, doesn't or the public sees it more objectively.
2: There will be a few uh, Democrats who probably will vote to acquit Trump, and there may be a few Republicans who vote to convict. Um, And the votes of those Democrats and Republicans in the Senate will be determined mostly by the partisanship of their home state. So Joe Manchin in in West Virginia uh, is a Democrat. He may acquit, and that's because uh, Trump won West Virginia. Um, Democrats in Arizona and Alabama— may also vote to acquit, whereas you might see Republicans in Maine and Alaska uh, voting to convict. And and a lot of it has to do with what their constituents uh, uh, believe on the issue. And I think that the the public is more in support now of witnesses because the public— I think, hadn't been paying a lot of attention to this. It was background noise, but now that we're at the final decision um, where it looks like you know something, w- th- this will be the final action by the U.S. Senate, now the, the, the public is saying, all right, I, I want to know what the facts are. And if there's somebody else uh, who has some kind of direct knowledge of what Trump asked for and when, then I want to hear from him. In this case, we're talking about probably John Bolton um, and, and recent revelations about his uh, interest in testifying before the Senate. I suspect the public is saying, well, well why not hear him?
1: That makes a lot of sense. Um, And so kind of thinking about this on the other side of the issue. So we've been talking a lot about how Um, citizens who seem to perhaps be more objective um, are kind of perhaps hopefully or should be pushing um, their senators to kind of move off of party lines Um, but how would you conceptualize the idea that a lot of times common voters um, have more going on than just being able to watch hours and hours of testimony and kind of make the completely informed decisions um, about something as complicated as this impeachment proceeding Um, so do you if you were for say designing a political system would you have have most of the power to either sway these kind of senators or people who are making the who are the um, jurors in this decision should that be resided with voters who may or may not be able to fully follow up on the impeachment hearings or do you believe that there should be more we should hold our senators more accountable for taking in all of the facts um, and trying to make an objective decision themselves
2: I would not recommend putting impeachment up to a national referendum Um, for precisely the reasons that you suggested, which is that most voters aren't paying attention enough until it becomes time to pay a lot of attention, which is what's, I think, happening. Now, the most important feature of any political system, the single most important feature, I think, is that uh, political leaders have to stand for re-election. There has to be that threat uh, from the electorate of being able to remove someone from office. And members of the general public usually don't pay that much attention to politics because it doesn't matter that much to them until it really matters. Then they pay attention. And I've had members of Congress who've who've told me um, they can get away, they can do almost anything they want on any issue until there's an issue where they can't. And they can't always predict what that issue is. Uh, Sometimes it comes out of nowhere. And right now, I think for uh, a lot of, especially Senate Republicans, the call for uh, increased scrutiny in the Senate is maybe coming out of nowhere. Um, not to say there's not substance behind it, but it was unanticipated. And if members of the Senate start to get um, calls from their constituents, from donors, uh, letter writers from their 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 districts saying, you know, we want to hear more about what happened, then, then I think those elected representatives know that they will have to face those voters in two, four, six years, and maybe— um, more likely to break from what we think of as a party line. Now, Mitch McConnell is an interesting case because within the last month, he announced that he had brought over $750 million in federal spending projects back to his district. He called himself, you know, uh, um, he, he said his position in the Senate and the Senate leadership allows Kentucky to, quote, punch above its weight in national politics. When a member of Congress goes back to a district, Pointing to all the things that they brought back to the district, and especially in this case, a Republican showing all the federal spending that he's brought back to the district, it's an indicator that that member of Congress is is electorally vulnerable. And, and Mitch McConnell, my guess, is feeling that he may be a little bit electorally vulnerable now, and is is hoping to shore up his support among his home state's voters.
0: Okay, so we've talked a bit about you know the current impeachment proceedings. We've touched a little bit upon like you know Clinton. We've mentioned Nixon. Um, I'm interested just to go, you know, all the way back through the history of impeachment. Maybe you could tell us a little bit, a bit about the first instances of impeachment and when it really became um, an instrument used by um, this, the the Senate. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Well, the the first <clears throat> the first case of impeachment was um, a senator, William Blunt, uh, back in 1799, who was expelled, uh, but the charges dis- against him were dismissed. So the first. Um, person removed from office, impeached, was a federal judge, John Pickering, who was removed in in 1804. Um, And and he was removed because of erratic behavior on the bench. Um, He was accused of public drunkenness. Uh, his, His son had testified that he's actually going insane. And he was impeached, not for political reasons, but for an inability to carry out uh, his, his duties. Uh, and it, that was a, 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 a vote that was uh, overwhelming, and it was not, I would think, argue politically motivated. It, w- it was uh, someone who needed to be removed. Um, there have been uh, a number of other cases of judges who've been removed from office. Um, the most recent was G. Thomas Porteous Jr., who was removed in 2010 um, for bribery and corruption. Most of the impeachment cases, and there have been um, uh, about half a dozen uh, are, ju- are federal judges uh, who've actually been removed from office, so convicted by the Senate. We haven't had a president yet who's been convicted by the Senate, but it, there are now three who've been, um, who, who have had articles of impeachment voted up in the House of Representatives. That's Andrew Johnson, uh, Bill Clinton, and Donald Trump. The first articles of impeachment introduced in the House of Representatives were against John Tyler back in 1843, Um, And that was politically motivated. He uh, he was the vice president for William Henry Harrison, who died uh, a month into office. And John Tyler then began to veto a lot of the acts of his own party in Congress, Uh, acts like uh, raising tariffs. And and, and, uh, and he strayed from his own party, which tried to impeach him, but was unable to. So those articles of impeachment, um, even though they were introduced to the House, didn't get uh, enough support for him to be – for, for the articles to then move to the Senate for conviction. So the very first articles of impeachment against a president were drawn for what I think are political reasons, and he was brought up by his own party. Andrew Johnson was also brought up for impeachment by his own party and then not renominated by that party. And then in the case of both Clinton and Trump, uh, they're basically party-line uh, votes to this point.
0: No, thanks for clarifying that, because um, I, I think the first misconception about impeachment is that it equals conviction. And the second one is that only presidents can be impeached, which, of course, is not the case. Um, and my apologies beforehand, I should have said instrument by the House, not the Senate. Still learning.
2: Well, and there, there is an argument that, um, and the, the, the framers of the Constitution actually discuss this, that maybe a president should be impeached, but anyone who carries out high crimes and misdemeanors by order, the president should be impeached. That is, the president wouldn't have to be impeached, because the president couldn't do anything without ordering somebody else to do it, and it's those other people that he orders or she orders to do it who would be the ones who would be impeached. And uh, I'm hearing that there is some discussion about bringing people within the Trump administration up on articles of impeachment in the house um, if they don't get donald trump or maybe concurrently with donald trump which is well, who else was involved in this uh, this potential ukraine deal and are they could be impeached that is anyone who's uh, confirmed by the senate judges uh, ambassadors um uh, are also potentially I- impeachable and then people who aren't confirmed by the senate like the president vice president are, could be impeached
1: interesting, interesting. that's super interesting um let's can we transition to we've talked a lot about impeachment as um kind of the framers built in perhaps last resort to a check on the president um what are some other checks on the president both in the constitution um and since then that you believe um can still be effective so i know for a while in the news there was talk of like a 25th amendment question um of like should can people render trump um no longer fit for duty without having to impeach him are there can you talk a little bit about the 25th Amendment and perhaps other mechanisms for placing limits on a president that is an impeachment?
2: Well, the 25th Amendment uh, would allow for a president to be removed when incapacitated. And I don't imagine that in this current context happening. Um, it would require uh, something much more serious. Um, even you know, Woodrow Wilson had had a stroke in office and his wife was writing executive orders. Um, and I think there was an argument that he was incapable for a time of, of, of acting as president. Some people have alleged that later in Reagan's term, uh, he was um, had early onset Alzheimer's. And that, that there were some questions about his capacity. Um, and, and both of those cases are debated. But in neither case was someone invoking the 25th Amendment. And I think you know, that shows that the invoking the 25th Amendment really takes something uh, very significant. Um, and I, I don't imagine that, that happening in the current context. The checks on the president are mostly electoral, running for reelection. And in the case of the second term, when a president can't run for re-election, I think it's also the, the public's view and whether the, how the president will be viewed by history. That is presidents generally want to do the right thing. Um, they're also constrained by the House and Senate and the courts and the states and all kinds of other barriers that our system of government puts around uh, presidents exercising. their will, and there there are many of them. When, the, when the, the framers wrote the Constitution, they were stuck between, on one hand, not wanting an all-powerful executive or monarch like they were trying to get away from in The uh, English King, but they also didn't want um, something like the Articles of Confederation where there was an absence of executive authority and a government that seemed uh, rudderless and and unstable. So they came up with something that's in between those two extremes, and uh, the the most important checks on, on the president, I think, remain public opinion, the other branches of government, but also don't forget the states.
0: Um, So on a slightly different topic, I'm just curious to um, kind of understand what the academic view on impeachment is amongst, you know, maybe professors at Dartmouth, other professors you've talked to. I mean, what's the general sentiment towards impeachment? Waste of time? um, Justified?
2: The political scientists would say, borrowing from Joe Ford, that impeachment is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives and two-thirds of the Senate says it is. Period. And, and we understand it that way. It is um, like anything else. Impeachment is political. It is inherently political. Uh, lawyers might argue, constitutional scholars, that there are certain definitions of high crimes and misdemeanors that have to be met in order for um, there to be uh, an impeachable offense. And we'll discuss the historical meaning of the term, high crimes and misdemeanors, the original intent of the framers, uh, the understanding in in British common law at the time. Um, But I think to the political scientists, it really has always been whatever a majority of the House and two-thirds of the Senate say it is. We understand that it is an inherently political instrument for removing a president. Um, And the, the gray areas of our Constitution cause people to be unsettled. That is, shouldn't there be a clear guideline about whether or not what Donald Trump has done is an impeachable offense or what Bill Clinton did? Is that an impeachable offense? But like most things in politics, there aren't clear lines. We can try to pretend that they're there. In some cases there are, but most of the questions when they reach this point um, are, are, are questions that are in a gray area. Because if they were about black and white, they probably would have been resolved well before, before now. So I, I hope that the, uh, the, the public is, is comfortable with the idea of what impeachment means. And I, it's really interesting to me that in the, what I think of as my short career I have now lived through two presidential elections where the winner of the popular vote did not win the Electoral College, and now two impeachment cases. These are interesting times in American politics.
1: It is very interesting. Um, And so as a government professor here at Dartmouth, um, and for perhaps Dartmouth students that are listening, um, do you think that there are concepts um, maybe that we haven't touched on here um, in this podcast that you think are super relevant for both kind of the impeachment, understanding what's going on, as well as maybe broader um, American political systems that people who may not take any of your classes do you do believe still should know?
2: Well, let's start with something that's close to home, which is the New Hampshire primary coming up. I think uh, the impeachment process has um, framed the Democratic uh, nomination contest. And and, and perhaps in negative ways in that the the, um, Democrats seem to be focused on who can beat Trump. And I, I would advise that they're speaking about Trump too much and not enough about policy proposals. Not, uh, uh, so Trump, in many ways, the best thing they could do is to ignore him and let the process play out in the House and Senate and focus more on policy. But a lot of them are talking about who can beat Donald Trump. Um, it's also, I think, vital to understand the undercurrent of Russia and the Ukraine. Remember that um, Paul Manafort is now in prison because of his dealings with Ukraine. He was one of Donald Trump's early campaign advisors. Ukraine, the Ukraine has been um, influencing what's going on in the Trump campaign in some way or another. There have been connections to the Ukraine um, from the very beginning in ways. It's surprising that the Ukraine is popping up so many times during the Trump presidency. Um, It's important to understand that what happens now in the U.S. will be viewed internationally. Um, And I think the fact that we are going through impeachment proceedings, regardless of the outcome, still makes us a a beacon of democratic government for the rest of the world to see how a stable government can function. We haven't. Hopefully, luckily and hopefully devolved into a military coup, a case where somebody is removed from office but refuses to leave, or a case where someone overthrows um, a, an elected leader, not through a legal process such as impeachment, but through uh, rallying the troops and parking the tanks outside of the White House. So we're not, we're not going through that. And, and in that sense, I, I think we should have great confidence still in American government, no matter the outcome. Um, People will be upset on either side regardless of the outcome, but if uh, all goes well, this will be a peaceful process. Uh, The resolution will be forgotten within a week after whatever that resolution is, and we will see a normal, deeply divided, but, you know, partisan, but I think hopefully informative and interesting campaign leading up to the November elections. So it will be back to electoral politics as normal. Um,
0: And on that uplifting note, I think we've unfortunately run out of time today. Um, Dean Lacey, thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm sure both Madden and I learned a lot, as I'm sure our listeners did. Um, Please join us, um, hopefully next week, maybe the week after, for another episode. Thank you. Thank you.